Matthew chapter 19 today. Matthew 19 is a rich chapter about following Jesus. We see an obvious contrast here between two kinds of people. On one side, we see the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, potentially for receiving salvation. He came to the right person. He asked the right question. He even kneeled before Jesus, and he asked, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him if he knows that he is a sinner. But he justified himself, claiming, claiming that he has kept all of God's commandments. Jesus then says to him, Well, sell all you have, give to the poor, which will give you treasure in heaven, and then come and you follow me, and you can be saved. Jesus gave the rich young ruler two instructions you have in your notes. Number one, admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And he refused to do that. He refused to admit his sin. Secondly, submit to Jesus as Lord. He loved his stuff more than Jesus. Follow me means love Jesus more than anything. And he refused to let Jesus Christ direct his life. And he left sorrowful. Why? Because he didn't know how to be saved? No, no. He knew how to be saved, but he refused it. He rejected the invitation to follow Jesus. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be what? Saved. Saved is a Bible term. It's a good term to be saved, to have the promise of heaven. And so in your notes there, I want to give you a different spelling of the word Lord. And that spelling is what? You know what it is? B-O-S-S. Lord means he's the boss. Lord means boss. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a Christian, but you want to continue to be the boss of your life, Jesus says, no thanks. No thanks. You come my way. Jesus could have said, okay, you call me Lord, and then you do whatever you want to do. But then he would have been a false disciple. He would have been a disciple just like Judas. Now, there's a second group of people here, and that is who we will focus on today, the disciples who left all, followed Christ, and be willing to leave all. Would you, would you please stand as we pick up the story here in verse 23? Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were, oh, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who, who then can be saved? Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? 
And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. May we pray. Our Father, today I, I ask that the Spirit of God would allow us to, to focus on the message you have for us, that Jesus Christ would be first, have first place in our lives. I pray that we would allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to do a, a sanctifying work to change us into the image of Jesus from our time spent in your house today. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful music. Thank you now for the message of the Word of God. I pray if there be one that's not saved, they're not sure if heaven is their home, may the Spirit of God save them today. Lord, may Christians now set aside all the cares of the world of the week and help us to focus on the message at hand. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last Sunday night, our choir sang a very powerful song about following Jesus. It's called The Cause of Christ by Carrie Job. It's just a, it's a favorite around here. The only thing I want in life is to be known for loving Christ and to build his church, to love his bride and make his name known far and wide. For this cause I live. For this cause I die. I surrender all for the cause of Christ. All I once held dear, I will leave behind. For my joy is this, oh, the cause of Christ. Yeah, this is basically what the disciples said to Jesus here. Jesus, all, all I once held dear, I leave behind. The only thing I want in life is to be known for loving Christ. I want to be known for building his church. And I hope that's in your heart today. Uh, that's what God put in my heart when I became a teenage follower of Jesus many years ago. To live for God's glory, to build his church. But too many Christians, too many Christians around the country and around the world, they're, uh, they're busy living for their own glory and they're busy tearing down God's church. And so we hear all the time, you see it on the bottom of page one, you only have one life, make it count. You only have one life, make it count. I began a new decade on Friday. 60. Milestones like birthdays or, and anniversaries are times we should all stop and reflect and remember if we can. And uh, so what happened is I turned 60 on Friday, and on Saturday, uh, Megan and I went to the ball game to, to see the, uh, the guys play, and we got there. And I said, oh, no, I forgot my phone, forgot my wallet. 60 in one day, and it's already starting. <laughs> I said, Megan, you got some money? I don't have any money to get in. She said, nope, I don't have any money either. I thought, 22, no money. So I thought, okay, not so bad. 
And then, so we're sitting there in the car. We call Matt. He's on his way. And then Lou Lepore walks by. Beep, beep, beep. And uh, so we bump some money from him to be able to, to get in. Uh, but these, these birthdays and these anniversaries, they're, they're times to reflect of what God has done and what God is doing in your life. And, and for me, words like uh, amazed and overwhelmed and thankful don't begin to describe how I feel about what God is doing here. It's a time of self-examination. Uh, when you read Jesus' words, it's a time to ask questions like, like, am I completely and wholeheartedly following Jesus Christ? Is it my main desire to love Jesus Christ and to build his church for his glory? Tonight will be a fireside chat, things that God has taught and is teaching me. Six o'clock. Uh, the rich young ruler had that opportunity to make his life count, to make an eternal difference in the lives of others, but he chose riches over Jesus. He had his whole life in front of him. Remember, he was the rich young ruler, but he spent his life on himself. In contrast to that, you have disciples who chose to follow Jesus. Jesus took the opportunity to teach a great lesson about being saved. And so as the rich young ruler walks away, as they see his figure get smaller and smaller in the distance, Jesus, he teaches a lesson on being saved. Look with me at verse 23. Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to get saved. It's very difficult. How, how difficult is it for a rich man to get saved? Illustration, illustration. It is as difficult for a rich man to get saved as it is to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. Well, how difficult is that? That is impossible. It's impossible to get a camel to go through the tiny little hole of a needle. The Jewish Talmud, Jewish writings by rabbis, they had, a, they had a saying written in their Talmud from Persia. It is easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle than to, and that expression was, to describe something impossible. Now, since there are no elephants in Israel, Jesus, he took that, he took that example and he substituted a camel, the largest animal in Israel, and he shared that message. So what's his point? It's impossible for a rich man to get saved. Now, some writers claim that's not what he was teaching. They say he was referring to a small gate called the Eye of the Needle Gate. And about 500 years ago, the story began to circulate uh, that a, uh, a rich man would have to unload all the bags off of his camel, you see the small gate there, to be able to squeeze through the gate. There is no archaeological, there's no historical information to back this up from the first century. Has anybody here ever heard that story about the eye of the needle gate? We know that's not true because Jesus says it's impossible with God. <coughs> he didn't say if you can unload all your stuff and you can squeeze through the gate. No, no, it's impossible. Why? Why is it difficult for rich people to get saved? It's easy. It's easy to be self-sufficient. And the rich are tempted to find their security in themselves. 
I mean, rich people don't have to look to others to supply their needs. They don't have to look to the government to supply their needs. They can look to themselves. And so the rabbis said almsgiving, A-L-M-S, almsgiving will deliver, quote, the condemnation of hell and make one perfectly righteous. Alms means to, means to give to the poor. And so many Jews, this is a common belief, many Jews believed the more you had, the more you could give. And the more you gave, the more you were able to purchase your salvation. And so the common belief was uh, the rich, they're going to heaven. They're going to heaven. And Jesus comes along and says the opposite. The richer you are, the harder it is to be saved. Until so the disciples are scratching their head thinking, if rich people can't get saved, now what about the poor people? I mean, they can't buy big sacrifices and they can't give alms to other needy poor people. And so look how they respond in verse 25. When the disciples heard it, they were amazed. No, no, no. They were exceedingly amazed. I mean, I mean, this is a shocking statement from Jesus to their traditional beliefs. And now you know why it says they were exceedingly amazed. Look what they say next. Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? I mean, if the rich people can't get to heaven, what about the rest of us? Who then can, can be saved? Verse 26. Jesus beheld them. He looked them in the eye. He gazed at them. He got their attention. He wants them to know this is extremely important what I'm about to say to you. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What is he saying? What's impossible? Salvation on your own. It's impossible to be saved by good works, by baptism, by human effort, by philanthropy. Religion saves no one. There is nothing you can do to wash away your sins. And so with men, salvation's impossible. Jesus, in one statement, he denies all religious systems across the world that say, do this, do this, do that, do that, do this, and you can go to heaven. We cannot save ourselves. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. With God, all things are possible. With God, rich people can get saved. With God, poor people can get saved. With God, middle-class people can get saved. With God, young and old people can get saved. Uh, with God, male and female can be saved. With God, people from all different nationalities can be saved. God truly, truly loves everyone in the world. I'm so glad that I can join with you. Our vast Valley Forge missions program is just a great expression of the love of God through us to the people of the world. Now, why does it have to be God? Because only God can change a heart. And when you make the decision to become a true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ, and you love Jesus Christ, what happens is God comes in and he changes your heart, and he begins to make you more like Christ in your personality and in your behavior and attitude and words and actions. He can change any heart. So here, here we have it, the choice to forsake all. Matthew left his tax-collecting table uh, to follow Jesus, Matthew 9.9. Peter and Andrew, James and John, left their fishing boats to follow Jesus. Uh, 
Our pastoral leadership team, our church and school staff, they left secular work. Uh, Sam Elstock and Ron Colton surrendered their lives as teenagers to follow God's call. Lamar Eifert and Greg Joyner, they left lucrative business careers in their 40s uh, to serve God. Rick Schneider turned his back as a bank executive when he was in his 50s. Uh, Matt Wendell, Anthony Iommi, Todd Comstock, Matt Turner, Dan Wall, Jim Bryson, all of our church staff, all of our school staff, all of them, they could easily make more money in the secular workforce, but the Spirit of God, with a still small voice, with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, said, I, I, I want you to serve me. And so they all partner with you in the greatest work in all the world, the work of Jesus Christ. May I say, in light of eternity, I submit to you that rather than giving up, they gain. Rather than giving up, they gain. They gain peace and joy now. They gain greater reward later. And so this is the question Peter asks in verse 27. Behold, Lord, we have forsaken all. Lord, we have followed you. What shall we have therefore? I mean, they see that rich guy. He walked away. We're not walking away. He kept his riches and lost heaven. Peter asks, we have abandoned everything to follow you. We have left our professions. We have left our families to follow you. We choose you over our inheritance. I think Peter's excited about what the Lord might say to him. Now let me stop here and say that the Lord knows Peter's heart. The Lord knows if he's asking the question, uh, a sincere question or a selfish question. And the Lord does not rebuke him. May I remind you that Jesus knows how to rebuke Peter. Remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gave the message that he's going to die upon a cross, and, and Peter says, oh, nope, nope. I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. Not on my watch, Jesus. You're not going to die. And so Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't want Jesus calling you Satan, all right? And that's what happened. So, so the Lord has no problem rebuking Peter when he needs a rebuke. No rebuke here. A sincere heart. Lord, we, we've done what you asked. We've left it all. What's going to happen to us? What do we receive? Jesus said there is a reward for forsaking all. And so we see it in verse 28. Uh, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, that, that, that word means the rebirth, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so look with me on page three of your, note, page three of, of your notes. The regeneration, the rebirth refers to the earth being reborn in the coming kingdom of, on earth. The curse will be removed from creation. The lion will lie down with the lamb, as we see illustrated at sight and sound. The desert will bloom like a rose. When does this happen? The Lord Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation. He sets up a 1,000-year reign upon the earth. At the second coming, he'll rule from Jerusalem. Psalm 2, Revelation 20, 4 to 6. I, I gave one of the verses to you in your notes. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death, that's hell, the lake of fire, hath no power, 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, how long? A thousand years, a literal 1,000-year reign upon the earth. And the reward for the apostles, verse 28, look what Jesus promises his disciples. You will sit on the 12 thrones, judging, ruling as governors over the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that's a wow. That's a wow. So that means you've got to have the Jews back in the land for the 12 tribes to be there for the apostles to rule over them. Did Jesus really promise his 12 disciples to be governors uh, over the Jews in Israel in the coming kingdom? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And every church, every church that says the Gentile church has replaced the Jewish people is calling Jesus Christ a liar. But I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus is coming back. He is going to rule from Jerusalem, and his 12 disciples will rule with him. Uh, Matthias or Paul will take the place of, of Judas. He is going to sit on his throne, and he's going to rule for a 1,000 years. When it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, every Reformed church has it wrong. You just read what Jesus said. Every prophecy given about the coming kingdom is going to come to pass, just as Jesus said in your notes, Matthew 24, 30. And then shall the sign of the Son of Man in heaven shall appear the sun, sign of the Son of Man. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So there's a reward for the apostles, but what about us? There's a reward for faithful Christian, verse 29. Everyone that forsakes houses, brother, sister, father, mother, white children, lands, for my sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. What do we receive? Well, honor and rulership. We who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we who are faithful, loving Christ now, will reign with him. First Peter says we are a royal priesthood, chapter 2. Revelation 1, 6. He's made us kings. He's made us priests unto God and his Father. He says you're going to judge the angels, 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, 3, that is honor and rulership. And then everlast, uh, receive more than your sacrifice. Whatever you sacrifice, God is going to bless and make it up more than what you sacrificed. A hundredfold means you'll gain far more than you ever lost. And then everlasting life. Heaven, heaven is a gift bestowed on those who become followers of Jesus. Say, how, how do I receive the gift? Believe that you are a sinner Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and rose again, and by faith he becomes your Lord and Savior. Your sins are washed away, and you have everlasting life that starts the moment you trust Christ as Savior. That's a double wow. I, I mean to be blessed by God as his children now and to spend eternity with him forever. And so what he's saying here is you can be rich now and poor forever, or you can be poor now and be rich forever. Now, let me just stop and say, let's, let's just be honest. Compared to the rest of the world, if you're in America right now today, and you are, you're wealthy. You're wealthy compared to the majority of the world simply by living in this country. And the Lord just keeps giving us more than we need to see if we will be good stewards uh, uh, to invest in his kingdom. 
The truth is, I don't own anything, and you don't own anything. Everything you have, God gives to you, and that he wants you to use it to bless him and to be able to bless others. And so anytime, anytime you, you give a financial gift to God for missions, to, to operate the church, the building fund, the scholarships for the students. Uh, it's all treasure in heaven. I mean, if, if God says, I'm going to reward you for a cold cup of water, then certainly everything that we invest by way of service and energy and finances, he is going to record that and give a gift of reward. This encourages me to give joyfully. It encourages me to give generously. And so the questions here are, uh, what are you willing to give up for Jesus? Are you willing to give up your dreams? Are you willing to give up your occupation, your pride, your fortune, your plans? Right now, are you really giving up anything to follow Christ? Follow Jesus and forsake all. Jim Elliott, four other men in the 1950s, they went to reach the Aka Indians for Christ, and the men were killed, they were murdered, they were martyred for their faith to reach those people and they were saved Elizabeth Elliot Nate Saint's sister this is what he said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose exactly what Jesus said and so right here Jesus says something because he wants to caution the disciples from letting pride come over their hearts. He wants to give a balancing truth. You trust me, you go to heaven. You sacrifice, I reward you. Verse 30, here's a proverb. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What, what does it mean? What does that mean, the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Now, I'll be the first to admit that, that uh, I didn't know the answer. If I did know it, I had forgotten it long ago. And so I thought I would enlist some help from some of you. What does it mean, the first shall be last? When Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, he was talking about those who put others before themselves and they will be first. And those who always exalt themselves as first will be last. Having a heart of service, putting others before yourself. So when Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first, I've always thought that means that it's more about a humility thing. Like when you look at Jesus Christ, of course he is the first of all the firsts. He will always be the first, yet he came as the last. He came as the least of these, he came as a servant. It's always just taking it that, and if we take on that embodiment of a servant, that that is what will make us first in the end, that, that heart of servitude. God is merciful and just, and he gives to each person um, his mercy, not based on what they deserve, but what he gives to them. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Basically, shoving your way in the front of the line here on earth gets you at the back of the line in heaven. <laughs> okay, I hope that helps. <laughs> now I hope it's very clear. You can pick one of those five opinions and say, oh, that's what it means. Or you can give me your own opinion. Or better yet, we can look and see what Jesus said. 
the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He gives the explanation of what he meant in the next chapter. It's a parable. And at the end of the parable, Jesus said and repeated, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So we, if you look on page four of your notes, if we just take the parable, or I'm sorry, if we take the, 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 the phrase all by itself, uh, the proverb all by itself, it means they all cross the finish line at the same time. Uh, it means it's a tie. The only way to be first and last is to cross the finish line altogether. So if you had 10 guys in a race and they all cross first, guess what? They're also all what? Last. And so it's a dead heat. It's a, it's a tie. So the proverb says it's a, it's a tie. It's a dead heat. What does it mean? So we come to chapter 20 and Jesus gives us the explanation of the proverb of verse 30. And so chapter 20, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And so it is called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. The ruler is the owner of a large estate with a massive vineyard. One day he hires laborers to work in his vineyard at different times. Now the workday is basically uh, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's a 12-hour workday. It, it is the end of September. It's time to harvest the grapes. And so uh, there is an urgency to be able to get them picked. And the owner goes to the village. He hires laborers. First thing in the morning, the scene happened all the time. In verse 2, the first group he hires is at 6 a.m. And they happily agree for uh, a generous wage. It's called a denarius. And that's the same wage that you would get if you were a Roman soldier. And so this is a generous wage for a day laborer. Standard pay for a soldier. In verse 3 and 4, the second group is hired at 9 a.m., the third hour. So 6 plus 3, that's 9 a.m. But he does not negotiate a price. He simply says, I'll pay you what's fair. In verse 5, he hires more laborers at noon. Uh, he hires more laborers at 3 p.m. Now look with me at verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out. Now what time is this? If the workday begins at 6, you add 11 hours, what time is it? 5 o'clock. So it's 5 o'clock. Uh, there's only one more hour left to work. He hires them at uh, 5 o'clock, the 11th hour, and says, Why stand ye idle? Uh, go and work. Go and work in my field. I'll pay you what is right. Now, now read verse 8 with me. Look at verse 8. So when even was come, it's down 6 p.m., the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, unto his foreman, call the laborers and give them their hire, pay them their wage, beginning from the last unto what? Uh, the first. What's that remind us of? Well, uh, that reminds us, sounds a little bit like our proverb, doesn't it? So the ones who went to work last were paid when? First. And the ones who came to work first were paid when? Last. And so the guys at the end of the line, uh, they worked all day. How many hours did they work? Twelve hours. Now look what happens in verse 9. In verse 9, when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, these guys worked one hour, they received every man a penny, a denarius. They received a day's wage for the one hour. The guys in the back of the line see it. Did you see that? Did you see that? Those guys worked an hour and they got a denarius. Get the, the owner is giving out a denarius per hour. Guess what we're going to get? We're going to get 
12. Woohoo! This is going to be really, really good. But as they watch, as they watch uh, verse 9, the guys that worked at 3 p.m. and noon and 9 a.m., they also received one denarius. Now, verse 10. In verse 10. But when the first came, the guys that started at 6 a.m., they supposed that they should have received more. I'm looking for a, a, a denarius per hour. And they likewise received every man a penny, one denarius. They said, that's not fair. We should get more. Verses 11 and 12, they received it. They murmur, murmured against the good men of the house saying, hey, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. These last have, have worked but one hour and, and you, uh, we burned, uh, Born the burden of the heat of the day. This is not fair. And the owner says, verse 13, but he answered and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree? And you can circle the word agree. Did you not agree with me for a penny, a denarius? Take that is thine and go thy way. I will give it unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will? To be generous with what is mine own is thine eye evil, thine eye evil, but I am good. The owner says, Friend, I, I am fair. I gave you exactly what we agreed upon. Don't resent what I give to others. Isn't it lawful for me to be generous to other people? The owner is extremely gracious to give the same. Now Jesus repeats the proverb. Look in verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. What's the point? The owner, which represents God, paid them equally, whether they started early, whether they started late. They all got the same thing. The last shall be first, the first shall be last means everybody gets the same. The last to work were first in line to be paid, and the first to work were last in line to be paid, but they all got the same. They all got a denarius, equal pay. So who's who in the parable? Who's who? Well, the owner represents God. The vineyard is the kingdom, and that represents salvation. Uh, the laborers are the saved. That's you and I. The laborers are the saved. The workers are the saved. The day is the work of a lifetime. The evening is the entrance into eternity. The denarius is eternal life. What's the message? Here's the message. No matter how long you work for the owner, when you get to the end of your life, all Christians receive the same eternal life. This parable is not about work. It's not about labor unions. It's about our attitude toward other Christians. God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us more than we deserve. It's grace. It's grace. You know, some people serve Christ their whole life and some for a short time. But all the saved enter heaven. The thief on the cross got saved in his last hour, right? He got saved in his last hour. Which labor does he represent? He represents the five o'clock worker. And he gets to go to heaven. He will experience heaven in the same way that Peter will experience heaven. Even though that Peter spent his entire adult life serving Jesus Christ, dies a martyr's death being crucified upside down. And they both receive eternal life equally. Does that sound fair? Here's the truth. None of us, none of us deserve heaven. 
It is out of God's love that he calls people to himself at different ages and different stages of life from different countries. It's all grace. We're not trying to work our way to heaven. It's a gift. And the rich young ruler chose riches and he rejected Christ. And so Peter says, we have forsaken all. What do we get? What do we get? We're the 6 a.m. group. Jesus needs to teach them a lesson because of how they view one another the resentment toward one another. Chapter 20, verses 20 to 23, James and John, mother come and say, hey, hey, Jesus, can my sons sit on the right hand and left of you in the kingdom? And, and verse 24 says, the other 10 got mad. Chapter 20, verse 30, in Jericho, two blind men call out to Jesus. And they say, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for you, but he does have time. And he heals them. He gives them their sight. Two blind beggars now join the group. The disciples would resent them. Uh, they don't belong with us. And Jesus is correcting their prideful view, that attitude that says, hey, hey, they're not important. Do you know who's going to be in heaven? Let me tell you who's going to be in heaven. There's going to be tax collectors and harlots and thieves and drunkards and murderers and missionaries and martyrs and it's going to be heaven for all of them we're all going to enjoy heaven if we receive Jesus Christ as Savior it's more than we deserve the lesson is stop resenting other Christians like the six o'clock crowd did you just love everyone you be gracious to everyone you let God deal with them rejoice greatly when someone is saved you say what about rewards what about rewards? Jesus said, he said in verse 28, 29, I will reward you for faithful service, for sacrificial and joyful service. But that's not the topic here. The topic here is how are we going to treat one another? How are we going to show love to one another? We're all equal here, receiving eternal life. There's no room in the family of God for resentment of God's other servants. If you have a prideful attitude in your heart today, God, God wants to cut it out and pull it out. You say, oh, I've been saved a long time. I know better. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. God says the first shall be last. The last shall be first. We're all going to heaven. We need to treat one another with love and respect and grace, and you need to get any prideful, resentful, unforgiving spirit in your heart. You need to rip it out. God doesn't want it in your heart. Oh, I've been saved a long time. Makes no difference. It is God's love and grace that brings us into his family. Were you saved young? Then serve him your entire life. Were you saved later in life? Like, like the thief on the cross? Frank Phillips? Serve Jesus Christ until you draw your last breath and enter heaven if you're not saved don't delay don't delay today's the day to become part of God's family may we pray Father thank you thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his great love for each one of us and I pray today if there be one that, that they're not saved may your Holy Spirit convict and draw them bring them to your, into your family today Lord I pray now for each Christian Lord, it's so easy to get an attitude, to get a spirit that is, that is carnal, that is not godly. And so I ask you to do the spiritual surgery.
and remove it from our hearts. Help us to know that we all, we all who are saved will experience heaven and that you love everyone equally. And Father, I pray today that you will do that spiritual work and we'll understand that forsaking all to follow you is absolutely the best thing that we could possibly do in this very short life that we have. Heads about, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I die today, I know I'd go to heaven. I, I don't remember the date, but I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to get me to heaven. I'm not trusting baptism. I'm not trusting good works. I trust Jesus alone. There was a time in my life that I made that commitment to receive him as Savior. If you've done that, would you simply raise your hand as a testimony all over the congregation? God bless you. You may put your hands down. You're here today. You say, Pastor, I, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but I'm not sure. I have doubt. I have doubt. God wrote the Bible to take away your doubt. The Holy Spirit is calling you today to become part of his family. And if you sense the Spirit of God convicting you of your sin, if there's a sorrow over your sin and you want to be forgiven, I point you to Christ who died for you and rose again. You can call upon his name today, right now, and be saved. Anyone at all, simply hold up your hand. Pastor, I, I want to get it settled. I sense the Spirit of God convicting me, drawing me to be saved. Would you simply hold your hand up high for a moment? I want to trust Christ as my Savior today. Anyone at all, I'll pray with you. I'll not embarrass you. I'll not call you out in any way, but I want to be saved today. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Christian, how's your, how's your heart this morning? Are you following Jesus? Are you willing to forsake all? Are you loving others in God's family with a pure and holy Christian love? Let God have his way. Give up the pride. Give up the pride. Replace it with love and humility. Father, may you bless in this invitation time. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you take just a moment? Would you meet with the Lord? Would you talk to the Lord? Let him have his way in, in your life, your family, your service here at church, your attitude at work, how you treat your friends. Is Christ being exalted by how you live? Let's all stand together. Let's sing that song, Have Thine Own Way, Have Thine Own Way, and let God have his way in your life. Maybe you want to pray at the altar and meet with the pastor, pray in your seat, but let God have his way as we sing together on the first verse. 20, and then Philippians chapter 1. Acts 20, Philippians 1. It's going to be a little bit different tonight. going to be some reflections tonight. So we're going to call it a fireside chat, and to do that, we need a fireplace. And so we have that. And so Acts chapter 20, and Philippians uh, chapter 1 this evening. While you're turning there, I, I want to reflect about uh, when I went to Bible college, I had been a Christian for less than uh, three years back in 1977. I went to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri with 2,100 other students, literally from 
all over the country and also from uh, uh, hundreds of missionary kids from all over the world with, of course, different opinions. Uh, I was so excited to be in a Christian environment. I had uh, graduated from West Springfield High School, uh, 3,000 in the school, 600 in graduating class, and just being immersed in the public school system and, and uh, really uh, my faith being attacked constantly from uh, teachers and students. There were a few Christians there, but not a lot. And so now I am at Bible college. I, I have that new Christian zeal. I have that new Christian expectation. And I had that new Christian knowledge, which means very low. <laughs> so I didn't know uh, a whole lot. I knew right from wrong. Uh, there were no preferences. There was just right and wrong. And pretty soon I, I found others who, who just didn't see things the way I saw things. And so they had uh, different and varying opinions on, on dress standards and entertainment and music and practices. Uh, my black and white opinions were challenged very uh, quickly. And with that, like the Bereans, I was, I was forced to study the scriptures, not just to look for verses to back up what uh, my opinion was, but really to search the scripture to see if those things were so. And so what happened is I had to, I had to test and see if my new Christian vows and my uh, new Christian convictions were biblical or not. And so, as we all grow, I discovered humility, where you have to get to the place and say, you know, ah, mm, that, that's not right. Not only is that not right, that's, that's, that's wrong. And uh, uh, things like, oh boy, mm, godly people believe different things about that, and that's, that's okay, that's okay. So as I grew my faith, uh, God allowed me through those four years to become a dorm supervisor uh, my senior year, uh, second floor Harper. And I had 40 freshmen, uh, a lot from Texas and California, and a, a few from uh, just from the South. And uh, I prayed that God would give me a pastor's heart for these guys and soften my heart from what I, the way I was when I was a freshman. And so I prayed, God, give me a pastor's heart. Forty wild guys. Wild guys. Now, not wild bad guys, but wild rambunctious, wild immature, wild in passion. And so uh, I believe that God answered my prayer during that year. I had a wonderful year of mentoring and teaching and impacting uh, those guys for Christ. We had dorm devotions. Uh, they called me mom. Mom. So, hey mom. So I was called a mom for, for a year there. But we have uh, dorm devotions, uh, hall meetings twice a week. I think they were Mondays and Thursdays. And so we would get that, and then my brother would come over. He was over in the senior dorm. He'd come over, and he was kind of like the big brother to all 40 of my freshmen. And he had the ability, I could get them all calmed down, and he had the ability in two minutes to turn them into mayhem. Uh, just, just like that. He still has the ability uh, to do that with my kids and grandkids. And uh, uh, he still has that effect. But what, what God was teaching me he was teaching me the importance of building strong relationships, of building strong relationships. So I had to replace something that I thought was premier and supremely important and to replace it with what God says is extremely important. 
And so that's what Paul did everywhere he went. He had such extreme reactions in his preaching, didn't he? I mean, he would preach, and, and people either hated him or they loved him. I mean, they hated him so much that sometimes they would want to stone him, and they did, or they would want to beat him, and they did, or they want to put him in prison, and they did. But then on the other side, the people that loved him, oh, did they love him. They would risk their life for him. They would do anything for him. So that brings us to the first passage, Acts chapter 20. Would you please stand with me? And I'll read to you just the end of what I like to call the Miletus message. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem for a special feast. And as he's going back, he, he stops uh, to see the pastors from Ephesus. He doesn't go to Ephesus. The pastors come down from Ephesus, down to Miletus. Uh, Jody and I had the opportunity actually to visit Miletus. It's not a place that, that most tourists normally go. Uh, and so the pastors come down, and he pours his heart out to them, and they meet together. It was, it was quite the meeting, quite the challenge. I'll just read the end of it here, beginning in verse 32. And now, brethren... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. He, he spent a lot of time in Ephesus there. I have showed you all things how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, and many of us have it in red in our Bibles, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You will not find that in the Gospels. You find it here. Jesus said it. Paul recorded it. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, now see it, watch. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. Back to verse 37. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. You see the, the building of the strong relationships there. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We had such a joy last year uh, going through this book. Uh, verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, the pastors and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. May we pray. Now, Father, tonight I, I pray that, that all of us might, might take time to reflect upon our lives. You, you've told us through the psalmist to remember how short my time is, to count our days, 
to redeem the time, to remember that life is but a vapor and that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So, Lord, I pray that as, as I'm doing that in my life, I pray that each one of us would examine closely our relationship with our Savior, our Heavenly Father, our sensitivity to the promptings, the leadings of the Holy Spirit of God, and that our love for you might quickly and clearly spill over to the love of family and friends and the lost. So God, take our time tonight, and I pray that, that you'll help us to see what you want us to see and that we will make commitments that will be pleasing in your sight in all that we say and do and how we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and, and uh, we'll sit down. I'll join you as well. A fireside chat. Oh, on a cold night, just as good. I see some of you out there doing this. <laughs> the Bible is a book about relationships. It's a book about relationships. A relationship is when, when two beings are connected. And God, God was perfectly at peace with himself in eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect fellowship and perfect harmony. And then at some point, God made angels, seraphim and cherubim and angels and all different kinds of angels. And, and then the, the angels were there for the creation. And so time began, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He creates the universe, the world, and life as we know it. And he placed Adam and Eve in that garden we call Eden and had a wonderful relationship with them. And they walked together in the cool of the day. What are they doing? It's a relationship. They're sharing. They're sharing life together until the day that sin entered into their hearts. And sin broke that relationship. And so the story of the Bible is God's record of restoring the relationship that was destroyed by sin. So Genesis 1 to 3, we could call that paradise, paradise lost. Genesis chapter 4, all the way down to the end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 22, uh, that's a story of paradise restored. Paradise lost, paradise restored. It's all about relationship. And what I've learned and continue to learn is to value building strong relationships. God's plan is to, to bring us into this world in a family where a dad and a mom love God they love each other, and then they love you as they brought you into this world. And that's the ideal relationship. And, and our, first, our first view and understanding of the Heavenly Father comes from our earthly father. But we live in a sin-cursed world. And many children are brought into homes where that ideal is broken. It is broken either directly or indirectly by sin. And sin has brought a curse onto every home, my home, your home, either through death or divorce or abuse. Many have suffered deeply in their homes. 
Now, John 10, 10 really helps us to understand this because Jesus, he, he, he said that the thief, which is Satan and the demonic host, the thief cometh not but for to what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. So every bad thing you see in the newspaper or in the news, I guess people don't use newspapers, uh, but if you see it on the news, uh, uh, it is because Satan and sin brings that great destruction into this, into this world. But then he said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Uh, paradise lost, paradise restored, restored. And as awful as sin is, Jesus, Jesus is better. And so, uh, just to kind of give you of, of my background, how I got to from zero to 60 to here, here's a picture of, of my dad, uh, Edward Augustus Wendell, my brother Steve, and me, I'm the handsome one on the right. <laughs> Both cute kids, I think, yeah. And so my dad, my dad was six foot four inches. And so my brother Steve and my son Scotty inherited that height from him being 6'4". And like any boy or girl, I wanted a relationship with, with my dad, but sin took that away. He died of cancer one month before I turned five. Uh, my dad and my mom's older brother, my uncle Roy, uh, they were fascinated with model airplanes. Uh, they built them, they flew them. This is up in the uh, family farm, the beaver farm that they purchased, my great-grandfather purchased in like 1895. And both of them, uh, this is just a sample of some of the many planes they had. And they would fly them either on a line, which you would fly and you'd go up and down and do loop-de-loos, you'd go in a circle, or some are, uh, like the bigger ones, are remote RC. Uh, remote control planes. Anybody here ever do any model airplane flying? Okay, some of you. All right, so you know what I'm talking about here. And so uh, that's what they did uh, when, um, uh, when they were younger. Steve and I picked up that love of planes from them, and we spent many hours of our teen years. Uh, in the wintertime, we were building and painting and repairing, and then in the summertime, we would fly, and here I am... Uh, uh, I think that's when I had long hair, but that's me. Uh, so flying, that's the little dot is the plane up there, and, and so it would be flying planes. Uh, I, I, suppose, I suppose from an early age, this is where I fell in love uh, with flying. Uh, here's a picture of my second dad uh, with Steve and me. Uh, again, I'm the handsome one on the right side. <laughs> Okay, not so much, but I, I guess I grew into it over time, but it wasn't quite showing up in, in this picture here. And so, uh, again, um, uh, with new stepdad, we were off to a good start for about a year. Uh, but again, sin destroyed the relationship. This time it wasn't cancer. This time it was alcohol. It was the cancer of the soul. Uh, years of alcohol abuse followed until 1975, uh, where my dad... Uh, where my dad received Jesus Christ as his uh, Lord and Savior. And that is a response to uh, my mom's faithful prayers, praying him in. And mom, if you'd raise your hand, good to have my mom up here uh, from Virginia for, for the weekend. Did you know what my dad did for a living? My dad worked for the Air Force. Uh, he and my mom were both civilian Air Force civil servants. And he made sure... He made sure that there was Air Force fuel for the military bases around the world, 
and sometimes had to fly to those bases and uh, be able to, to check on the policies and procedures and all that. In the 1960s and 70s, it was a popular thing to, to put posters on your bedroom wall. Uh, any of you do that, would you raise your hand? Be honest. Be honest. Put posters on. Okay, so many of you are honest. And so uh, you put posters on your bedroom wall. My, my, uh, my buddies in high school, they had posters of rock stars, pop stars, or sports stars. Not me. Not me. Uh, do you recognize this place? If you recognize this place, raise your hand. Okay, what is this place? This is the Air Force Academy where? Colorado. All right, and so this is where I wanted to go when I graduated from high school. And so I've got uh, uh, my, my dad, my first dad, he, uh, you know, he loved planes, and, and he flew the model planes, and my stepdad, my second dad, he worked for the Air Force. They'd bring home these posters, and that's what was on my wall. That's what I would think about. That's what I wanted to do is to, to become a pilot, to fly planes. Didn't matter if it was military or commercial, but then I was told that commercial airline pilots, uh, commercial airlines, wanted to hire men who already knew how to fly, and that means that would be Air Force pilots. So I thought, okay, I want to serve my country. I want to serve my country, and I want to be a pilot, and, and that... Uh, is what my life was about. Life was all about me and what I wanted. And so I lived the first 15 years of my life for me. As a typical lost teenager, as I grew, so did my selfishness. My selfishness grew as well. Uh, but it all changed suddenly. A mom prayed dad into the family of God. He gets saved, they get a track, and they go to a Baptist church instead of the Protestant church that didn't tell us anything about, about uh, the gospel, the Lord, or the Bible. And so I heard the gospel... Week after week, this is the building that after four months of hearing the gospel, uh, down in the, um, uh, off the center aisle on, on uh, the organ side here, second to third row back, uh, once I heard the pastor preach about loving God with all your heart and loving others, and I knew that I was a selfish sinner that needed forgiveness, and God saved me uh, that day and arrested my attention and put me off in a different direction. And so the first Sunday of 1976, my brother Steve and I were both baptized in this building. As I grew my faith, uh, I began to grow in the value of relationships, first of all with God, and then with, with family, and then in the family of God. So now that I'm 60, in two days, now that I'm 60, I can easily divide my life into four quarters of 15 years each. First quarter, unsaved, living for self, suffering the consequences of living in a fallen world with a dad who died of cancer and a dad who became a drunk. Second quarter of my life, receiving Christ as my Savior. And because of a mom and dad who gave their lives wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, we're at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, visitation, and the power of of sin that was so strong in our home was broken. Amen. was broken. And it set me on a new trajectory. And so the second quarter of my life, I, I'm leaving my plans. I'm leaving my dreams. I'm leaving my wants and my desires, abandoning them for what I believe God wants to do in my life. I, I gave up on my plans to go to the Air Force Academy I gave up the plan to become a pilot, 
and, and thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll look at Christian universities and began doing that. But finally, January of my senior year of high school, I was home and just had no peace. Everyone knows where they're going to go to college. I don't know. And I'm wrestling with the Lord of what to do. And it was just a surrender. I thought it'd be easy to be in a, a cockpit. I'm a shy kid being in a cockpit by myself, maybe a co-pilot, and, and that'd be, it'd be a great thing. And so now this idea of surrendering to go to the mission field, uh, to become a pastor was just simply overwhelming, uh, but I wanted God to have his way. And so what happened in that quarter of my life? Off to college, graduate, marriage, internship, moved to Pennsylvania, didn't know a soul, started the church, uh, building the first building. Third quarter, third quarter of my life, I soon discovered the trials of life had returned to me once again, uh, being widowed, being a single parent, uh, uh, being, going through loneliness. And if you go to that uh, uh, Facebook or blog post, you can learn more about that. Third quarter, end of the third quarter and fourth quarter of my life until now, meeting Jody. Uh, what, a, what a step of faith she took. Uh, we're, we're just kind of reflecting on that. You know, we write for three months. Um, I, uh, I called twice, go to Canada. I go back a month later, we get engaged. Her parents came here in between. And so that Valentine weekend, 1996, she came and she met a lot of you. She said yes to marry me before she met the boys, before she met my parents, certainly before she met Steve and Jackie. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't taking any chances <laughs> before she met you. <laughs> she looks back and says, what was I thinking? I didn't even meet the boys. <laughs> and so God has, has richly, richly blessed my life through the last half of that third and fourth quarter and he has been faithful. And through that, the church continues to grow and uh, life continues to be a, a roller coaster up and down. But now I'm 60. And you know what I thought was important at 15 when I became a new Christian is no longer so important. And so I, I speak now not as, as, as wise and mature and a know-it-all. I'm still a student, but I speak now without that immaturity of the 15-year-old. And I hope and pray that the zeal of a new Christian has not worn off after 45 years, but I do hope that the ignorance and the immaturity of a new Christian, seeing everything as black and white, has long passed. God has replaced it with grace, His grace. And God grows, God grows His people at His time, not mine. And God expects me to love Him with all of my heart, mind, and soul. And the expression of the love for God, you just got to look around. It's right here. You can say you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, but if you're not expressing it in family, in church, in friendships, in the work setting, it's shallow words. Shallow words. Building relationships is what God wants. First of all, with Him. 
building relationships with family. And, and some have immediate members who are lost family members and distant family members that are lost. And I understand there's, there's not a connection because of, of the faith of Jesus Christ has separated you. But you want to do your part. Early on in ministry, when I was running full speed ahead in ministry, I, I heard a seasoned pastor say, the success of a life in the ministry is not the size of the congregation or buildings or budgets, but the countenance of his wife's face and the respect of his children. What was he saying? Well, what he was saying was, if you're not a spiritual leader at home, you're not a spiritual leader. It starts at home. But as my kids got older, and I, again, five of them, I discovered an amazing thing. They all have a free will. And they all don't always see things the way I do. And nor does our church family. You got one? Okay. And so what's going to happen is when, when people don't see it my way, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to love, supposed to live by example, be patient. I'm not there yet, but this is what I'm pressing on for as our men sang today. So strong relationships. Uh, what does Paul say about that in Philippians? Well, strong relationships have a servant's heart. Uh, I see that in Philippians 1.1 where he said, uh, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ... Paul says to the church that he loves so much, I am a servant of Christ and I am your servant. He is telling all the leaders, he's telling all the members to be servants. He's telling them, I want you to put others first, put the wants and needs of others before your own. In verse 23 and 24, he said, I, I'd rather go to heaven, but I need to stay here and be with you uh, to help grow your faith. Number two, strong relationships are worth remembering. In verse 3, look what he says. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Do you live and love and serve in such a way that you are, are remembered? Uh, Paul couldn't forget these people. He couldn't forget them. Uh, they're on his heart. They're, they're, they're on his mind. And he kept thanking God for them. Strong relationships are worth remembering. Number three, strong relationships bring joy. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, Paul, making requests with joy. Uh, do you live and do you love in such a way that you bring joy to others? John 15, 11, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Jesus wants us to have full joy, and that's his joy. Do you bring joy to relationships? I mean, to your family, do you bring joy? To your friends, do you bring joy? Or do you bring drama? Do you bring drama? Like, I need to call 911. This is not going so well. <laughs> Remember, Paul is in jail. Paul is in prison when he wrote this. He's not mad. He's not sad. He's not worried. He's filled with joy. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what kind of conflict you have with God with your mate, with your kids, your parents, your siblings, your friends, a church leader, uh, co-workers, a boss, a subordinate. I don't know what you're going through, but I guarantee you that, that Paul was worse off when he wrote this than you are right now. He was worse off. 
He's waiting to appear before Nero to get the word that he could be beheaded and killed for his faith. And yet he's filled with joy. Now, if he can be filled with joy in his trial, I'm here tonight to tell each one of us that we can be filled with joy in our trial, whatever it is. And so God did a, God did a great work in my heart this last year as we went through Philippians in 2019. And, and it was nothing new, because I'd memorized the book years ago. Nothing new, but I, I learned in a greater way contentment. I learned in a greater way joy, a greater peace. And it's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon making everyone happy, but pleasing the Lord. D does anyone ever come to you and tell you to fix someone else? <laughs> you need to go do that. You need to go do that. You ever have that happen? Oh, become a pastor. Become a pastor. And uh, it happens often. So strong people that are building strong relationships that bring joy. Are you spreading joy? Because that's what is deposited in your heart. You need to let it out. You just need to let it out. God's joy. Strong relationships, number four, are loyal to Christ and his church. And verse five, he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now your fellowship in the gospel. There's a loyalty to Christ. And since Christ loves his church, there's a loyalty to church. And again, church is not this building. Church is, well, Philippians 1.1. It's, it's the pastors, the deacons, and the people. We are the church. Have you noticed the shallowness of Christians in our society? Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, but my old church changed their service times, and I didn't like it, so I left. That is not a made-up statement. Around the country, around the country, pastors, deacons, they're, they're, they're trying to reach their community and lead the congregation to love the Lord Jesus and, and, and change the service times, and people leave because they change the service time? We're not talking about persecution. We're talking about changing the alarm clock 15 or 20 minutes, one direction or the other. The Philippians were steadfast. The Philippians were consistent. The Philippians were loyal. And I hope and pray, I hope and pray that you want to build a strong relationship to Christ and to his church. Uh, number five, strong relationships are close to the heart. They're close to the heart. We see it in verse 7. In verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. You saw that back there in, uh, in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian pastors. They kneeled, they prayed, they wept sore. They kissed. You talk about strong relationships. And look what he says here. He says, you are in my heart. And, and um, this is where I just want to say thank you. Uh, going back to anniversary Sunday, 35th anniversary, July 2019, uh, Thanksgiving, 
Christmas, and, and yes, this last week with, with my birthday, I, I can't tell you, I can't tell you uh, the greetings, the text, uh, the card, uh, what the words of love and appreciation and encouragement of gratitude, it just, it just fills my heart and soul. If you say tomorrow, Pastor, we had a, we had a downfall in the offerings, uh, you, you can no longer get a salary. Still here. Still here. Don't take me literally. I'm just kind of figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> Got to pay the mortgage. Three kids in college. <laughs> now, it is truly out of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, truly out of love. And when Paul says to them, uh, you're in my heart, I can say to you, uh, you're in my heart. And I'm thankful to know that I'm in your heart. And you express that again and again. I'm, I'm truly grateful for that. Uh, here's a gift that uh, from my kids that I was given today. It is a... Uh, kind of like a little book of remembrance we celebrated today with my mom coming up. And it just says, I love you, Dad, and here's why. And so my kids, um, they, uh, there's a little statement, and um, uh, these words make me think of you, and then they wrote the different things in it and, and uh, things that Dad likes to say, and they wrote some things in here. So it just filled with, with different things from them. And, and you know, that just, that just that means so much to me uh, to be able to have uh, that relationship. And then, and then I, I have this. This is unique. No one in the world has this. Can you read it? <laughs> so pop, pop. And then the little lines uh, are the, uh, the names of all the kids and the grandkids. Repeated again and again. And so on a, on a cold winter night, now that I'm 60, I have to tuck in. <laughs> Give a little hot cappuccino, some popcorn, ice cream. <laughs> yeah, but what it says is, you know, when my kids are scattered. I mean, they're all over the country and all over the world. And, um, but they're, they're close to my heart. They're close to my heart. Um, and that's how I feel about you. That's how Paul felt about the Ephesians, about the Philippians, about these people that he spent, he spent his life investing in them uh, for the gospel because they're family. And there is a family relationship that we have by the Spirit of God. Now, my brother and I, we, we, we look nothing alike. We act nothing alike, but we are blood brothers. He says he's adopted, but I don't believe him most of the time. But we were born of the same parents. That makes us blood brothers. And we are, we are born of the Spirit of God, so we are, we are family. We're family. We need to treat each other like family. I, I need to move quickly here. Uh, strong relationships are Christ-centered, verse 7. Uh, we, we see that as well. 
Uh, he said, you're all partakers of my grace. And I believe the relationships in our church are strong, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is the center of our lives, our faith, our beliefs, our love, our worship, then we are stronger. When we replace Christ with our preferences and our demands and our will and our way, we begin to crumble the relationships in our family. We crumble the relationships with Christians. But when the piano is tuned to middle C, and middle C is Christ, and we are tuned to him, we'll get along. We'll get along. We're different, but we get along because of that. One more, uh, strong relationships stay strong in the good times and bad times. In verse 7, he also said, uh, both in, in, in my bonds, I am set for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So, what I've discovered is this. You can't control the other side of the relationship. Now, with God, it's always going to be perfect. But, but you can only control your side. And God allowed Adam and Eve to choose their own way, the sinful way, but he provided love, and they came back to him. And what I have learned, when others disagree, when others have conflict, keep on loving, keep on praying, keep on forgiving, keep on serving. Uh, keep Christ first in your heart, in your life, and soon you'll discover, you'll discover it's about strong relationships. Building strong relationships with God, with Christian family, with the family of God, and then even reaching out to the lost and the lost family. So that's, that's about it. Some fireside chat to say thank you for loving me when I trip and fall and fumble. I love you and going to keep loving you whether you pay me this week or not. I'm here. I'm all in. I have no desire to become a leader of some mission board or mission agency and move away from you. That, that's not tempting to me. The pastor in the area one time, he said to me, oh, well, don't you, don't you want to, to, to be invited back to teach at Baptist Bible College? And I said, no. He said, well, I'm getting my master's so that I could go back and teach her someday. He said, isn't that what all pastors want to do? <laughs> Never entered my mind. <coughs> Never entered my mind. Let's keep on, as our men sang, press on until we see our Savior. Father, thank you for our time tonight. And I pray that as Paul expressed his heart and I have attempted to express my heart, that we'll keep our eyes on Jesus that we'd be willing to abandon our plans and our will and our way and our dreams and our preferences and our demands for you because there is a, a world of people without Christ. And we pray that we as, as a church family, that we can be a lighthouse. Thank you for people being saved last Sunday and the previous Tuesday. You continue to work. God, we love you. Thank you that we are co-laborers together with our Lord and Savior. May you bless our time now of invitation. In Jesus' name 